0: Do you think COINTELPRO was like something you graduated to? Like you weren't pro yet?
1: You're COINTEL amateur? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Well, junior
0: varsity hey, here's FBX the thing. squad.
1: You start in high school, you know, you try to make the team, you start snitching on your fucking be like, listen, I saw him cheating on the test earlier. Like, you know, I think she's been late. I don't think, I don't think actually Jimmy's actually sick today. And you know, then you graduate, and you know you you know you start buying dime bags of fucking coke, and then you you know you call the cops, and you're like, "Please arrest this guy." And they're like, eh, "That's too far. I don't know where Hemlock is." Um, and then eventually, you know, you work your way up a little. You start snitching more and more, and yeah, you can make the
0: professionals. Absolutely. Do you think that that still exists now? what's your take? Snitching? No, not snitching. Like a co <laughs> pro like program
1: yeah well i mean i think i think it's kind of like in the way that we were talking about earlier um uh this morning is that like yeah absolutely yeah but also like just the fact it's the fact that everyone just uses the internet and like their cell phones all the time it's like you Mm -hmm. are always on a tapped line and so like a lot of the work is basically like it can be automated but like i mean do i think that like are like tensions exploited and stuff like you know poison letters written all that kind of stuff. Mm. I mean, probably to some extent, but like also uh, people who are involved in radical politics uh, in America are so mentally fucking insane that like you can just wait till someone reveals that they have like an adult baby loving fetish or whatever, and you're good. Jeffrey Epstein.
0: Jeffrey Epstein. Hello again, Liz.
1: (laughs) What? You don't like this?
0: I just thought about doing like a baby voice and being an adult baby, adult baby (laughs) wavio. Wait, what the fuck? You just said I couldn't say that. I know, but then I couldn't stop laughing, thinking about it. Can you do it? No.
1: I I can start.
0: <laughs> <Wow>. oh, no. <laughs> okay, shut it down. Start it over. No,
1: no. Welcome. <laughs> so nice. To- <laughs> I don't know what voice I'm doing. Well,
0: welcome. I don't think Ooh. I could do it. No,
1: please do it. Please. I'm not. I'm not. Talk- <laughs> I'm not. I look, I just dropped my phone. I'm not talking anymore until you do it. Hello. <laughs> mm-hmm. Keep going. Keep going.
0: I'm Wiz. <laughs>
1: I'm Bryce. We're joined by Wha- one. Wong- <laughs> How do you do that?
0: Why? Producer. P- 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 <laughs> we can't use any of this. this is we have so to use t- all of this. We
1: have to use all of this.
0: <laughs> okay. Hello. I'm
1: Liz. <laughs> I'm Brace. We are joined by adult baby producer Young Chomsky, who is t- uh, just a widow baby who's so helpless and his big diaper <laughs> on his back. That's- How are you to go to stand up again? Uh. We got it. We got it. Who does
0: the music for this one, Liz? We'll talk about it later. Okay. But everyone, hello. Welcome. Hi. Truanon.
1: Welcome to (laughs) (laughs) Twooanon.
0: Okay. Let's just stop it.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, we, yeah. (laughs) I
0: don't know why we went that direction (laughs) with the episode we have planned today. (laughs) Yeah, that is, believe
1: me, we actually have two, like, scholars on, or it's like a serious interview. We are serious people. Uh, it's a serious subject. We are talking about COINTELPRO. <laughs> we are talking about COINTELPRO, um, and, uh, and you know, the Chicago Red Squad, murder of Fred Hampton, and how some of the stuff maybe isn't like you think. Why are you still laughing? Now I'm doing the regular voice. This is how I talk.
0: <laughs> now I'm thinking of Fred <laughs>
1: No, no, Liz, that's, 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 no, 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 shut it down. Anyways, please, Liz is, she's not even on screen anymore. Please enjoy our interview uh, with Aaron Leonard and Connor Gallagher. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Quantico. We have with us today uh, Aaron Leonard and uh, Connor Gallagher. Uh, Aaron is the author of uh, several books about FBI repression, uh, and uh, and they are both they are both educators, and they are here to help uh, educate us on what exactly uh, went down with this whole COINTELPRO thing, the murder of Fred Hampton, the Red Squads, the Chicago Police Department, and uh, essentially what, what, what came out of that, uh, that murder in uh, 1969 and, and, and the context surrounding it. So, so welcome to the show. I think we should start off with, uh, with talking about actually the actual murder itself, because this movie just came out, uh, You know, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Fred Hampton, of course, a very popular sort of figure uh, in American mythology. Um, but I think for those maybe who aren't super familiar with it, uh, what are the circumstances surrounding uh, uh, Chairman Fred Hampton's murder?
2: Well, uh, first, uh, uh, Liz, Brace, uh, good to uh, talk to you, uh, actually, once again. um,
1: Pleasure to have you back.
2: uh, So just on Fred Hampton, so he's uh, 21 years old. He's a rising figure in the Black Panther Party in Illinois. He's uh, a deputy chairman, and then he becomes the chairman of the Chicago chapter. Uh, You know, the Panthers in Chicago really only get started at the end of 19... 68 uh, so Hampton's tenure is is very brief but he is uh, a very good speaker very effective speaker and you know compared to uh, the cohort of uh, orators if you will of the Black Panthers he's exceptional uh, he is early on a target of the Chicago police and the FBI um, he's arrested at one point for a The looting of an ice cream truck, he's actually convicted. There's um, debate about whether or not he actually had anything to do with it, but the government authorities were happy to convict him uh, and slap a two- to five-year sentence on him. Uh, He'd actually served some time, was let out pending appeal, and two weeks before he died, the appeal was rejected. So he was confronting returning to prison. Uh, If people have seen Judas and the Black Messiah, I mean, the film is accurate in a lot of ways. But, you know, as as a historian or or maybe just as somebody who's studying this stuff, I'm I'm starting to realize that the films like this, because I watched this film and the the Chicago seven that, you know, they offer a lot of details. Mm -hmm. But this whole based on fact is take it with a grain of salt. If you're watching something based on fact. It means if you really want to know what happened, you're going to have to read some things, which is not to say don't enjoy the movie, don't be influenced by the power of these films, but don't view them as history. I mean, uh, sad to say, history requires a bit more work than just sitting and taking in a film for two hours, which also wants to interface with your emotions. So Hampton is a rising star, but he's also facing jail. Uh, and he's a target of the state authorities. Uh, the Chicago police are out for blood because two of their officers are killed in mid November in a shootout. Uh, one of the uh, black Panthers is killed as well, Jake Winters. So the story, this FBI, William O'Neill tells, and I guess I tend to, uh, give it some credences that the Chicago police wanted revenge. Uh, police, unlike the FBI, can tend to be a little bit more wild West uh, when it comes to to doing their stuff. So they the Chicago police plan a raid uh, for the early morning hours of December 4th. 15 of them approach a house where the Black Panthers are staying. Uh, there's nine people in there. The house is actually just a couple blocks from the Black Panther headquarters. I believe the uh, Students for Democratic Society office is in the same neighborhood. Um, Some of your Chicago listeners can probably point on a map where all this is. So the police come in. Uh, They claim they're fired on. You know, they're not. 90 shots are fired. Uh, One shot comes from uh, the Black Panther side. Uh, Mark Clark, who is uh, from Peoria, Illinois, he's a Black Panther. He's killed. Uh, early on, the police spend ten minutes in the house, shooting people. Uh, people are wounded. Fred Hampton is murdered. Fred Hampton uh, is laying in bed with his girlfriend, uh, Deborah Johnson. Uh, Johnson actually talks about. I mean, if you actually read her testimony, I mean, the uh, the reports have been well. Hampton mm-hmm. never woke up. But actually, if you read through even what Deborah Johnson was saying. A, within a year of this, she says, "I don't think he woke up." So the question of you know whether or not he was conscious is uh, is open. Although you know it it reads like he was having trouble waking up, which suggests perhaps uh, he had been drugged. Uh, there's conflicting toxicology reports. Hampton is dead. Uh, there's a famous picture of the Chicago police carrying him out, and one of them has this just evil smirk and another is is kind of like yeah. seems to be happy. I mean it's celebration time for the Chicago police and celebration for the FBI. The FBI give their informant a $300 bonus and in the document, you know, I just uh, got in Roy Mitchell's file, they give their the FBI handler of the informant a bonus of $200. So the FBI is celebrating as are the chicago police this young black man has been murdered in his bed full of promise and it's like they're celebrating uh as for people who uh, look to someone like hampton and supported him there is outrage and there's grief Uh, and that's where really the story just starts and here we are in 2021 and we are still telling this story
0: And still trying to put the pieces together. Um, It seems like a lot of your work, your research around this is really focused on, you know, okay, these are the things we know from a myriad of sources, but there's so much we still don't know, right? We don't really know um, how much... The you know or how exactly the cops the local cops were working with the F- FBI, um, how much the FBI is responsible for here versus the Chicago police. A lot of that is up for debate, and for some people maybe this sounds I don't know not unimportant, but maybe not the most the the biggest part of the story the most the biggest thing to focus on in the story. But it's actually pretty interesting, you know, trying to tease out exactly how local police worked with the FBI. To infiltrate and and spy on and break apart, you know, um, growing radicalism. So, I mean, here in this case in Chicago.
2: Yeah, I want to, Connor, to Liz's point, maybe you could talk about what exactly the black nationalist COINTELPRO hate was, because I think you know, understanding that is critical to understanding then interfacing with local red squads.
3: Yeah. So uh, before we're talking, before we're on air about sort of what people think. They know about Cointel Pro. And there's been a lot of sort of common wisdom that's been handed down that actually isn't entirely correct. And some of this uh, is understandable since initially we only found out about Cointel Pro when um, some activists broke into the Media Pennsylvania FBI office, stole some of those FBI files, and alerted the world to what was actually going on with the FBI. And as over time people have accumulated more files, but we're still largely, I feel, working on sort of a partial picture. And that partial picture, that first draft at some point became sort of the template or the Bible. And and part of what we've been trying to do is fill in some of those pieces, right? So part of a, we're mentioning like the Red Squad, which are sort of, for shorthand, they're basically sort of the police intelligence units within like city police, right? And then there's the FBI, which is a national organization. And there's two implications of that. One is how they're functioning, local versus national. But then there's also a much different sophistication and this, and this is to your point this might seem like just sort of getting into details that aren't very important but it is actually uh, worth understanding how these things uh, work differently right because when I look at uh, the murder of Fred Hampton I sort of see uh, a cop solution to a Panther problem and not an FBI solution mm. to a Panther problem in the sense of the FBI it. is much more sophisticated in what they're doing and so I think uh, activists can sometimes pat themselves on the back or like going to a protest and or uh, a meeting and saying, oh, there's the uh, police undercover. And I think they sort of have the same attitude with the um, FBI. But as we've like, uncovered, uh, wrote about in the first two books of uh, Heavy Radicals and Thread First magnitude is Chicago, especially was incredibly sophisticated. This is the area where they developed a fake communist organization. And when I say developed fake communist organization, I'm talking about developing full... Uh, p- propaganda, sophisticated, knowledgeable in the scene, able to speak the language, able to convince international communist leaders around the world that they were a real group based on their writings. And so, uh, and if and look, we've had access to look at some FBI files. I've had access to look at uh, some police files from some places like Chicago and Portland. And there's just a world of difference, you know. Everything with the police is really about a brute force to solve any problem. Mm. There's not the sophistication, right? And we can see this, uh, specifically in the example of Chicago, right? Because the police, when the police come in, uh, and do a raid, they will essentially, uh, come in full force firing one point. They even set uh Panther mm-hmm. office on fire and the FBI, there's this bizarre paradox with the FBI. If Hoover is so obsessed with the law, he's willing to break the law to catch lawbreakers. And so he's really obsessed by doing things by the book, even while he's illegally undermining people at the same time. Sounds very strange. Mm. And so there actually was a raid by the FBI in the same year as the police raid in, in 69, but the FBI, no shots were fired on each side and the FBI. And this also shows how the FBI does things. They had the pretext to do this because uh, there is this, their claim that a FBI, I mean, a a black Panther who was on the run? Uh, who had, uh, um, from uh, New York was had come through the Chicago office? That essentially makes it a federal case. The FBI then had a yeah. claim to raid. Whereas the Chicago police, um, the only reason they need to raid the Chicago Panther office is they wake up that morning. So there is definitely this thing of trying to do things by the book at the same time as they're illegally undermining this organization. And the whole reason of what and a bunch of people were arrested uh, in that July raid by the FBI. And But why didn't any arrests come from it? Because all the charges had to be dropped. And the reason the charges dropped is because the FBI didn't want to reveal who their agent was that they got the information from. Because for the FBI, yeah. that's actually much more important to them, is gaining information right. and keeping tabs on people. And as we now know, that person who was giving the information was almost likely uh, William O'Neill. Whereas the police don't really care about things so sophisticated as what is the top leadership saying? What, what are the divisions, right? Because the FBI had been doing this for decades. They'd started Cointel Pro in 1956. Uh, and and by the late 60s, they've opened uh, Cointel Pro against uh, what they call black extremists or black hate groups. And so they had developed much more sophisticated techniques and they realized how important information was. And that so much so that they they were did not want to risk uh, outing their informant just to get uh, eight Panthers arrested.
0: So when we say opened a COINTELPRO, just for our listeners, what exactly do we mean when we say that? Because, you know, I think, again, COINTELPRO gets, has kind of been memed into being this sort of catch-all for what was actually a bunch of maybe specific instances and now, you know, arguably is just general practice <laughs> among the feds. But... um when we say, like, uh, opened a COINTELPRO, what do we mean exactly when we say that?
2: Uh, yeah, so I want to tackle that because I uh, was actually looking back at Ward Churchill and Jim Vanderwall's uh, book on uh, agents of repression. And uh, they actually have this definition right at the top. Regardless of its precise technical meaning in Bureau ease, COINTELPRO is now used as a descriptor covering the whole series of sustained and systemic systematic campaigns directed by the Bureau against a wide array of selected domestic political organizations, individuals. Uh, so, you know, I read that and I was a little appalled because basically Ward Churchill and Jim Vanderall are saying, well, it doesn't matter what the FBI thinks, COINTELPRO, here's what people think it is, and we're going to write a book based on that. Uh, you know, look, I, I mean, the spirit and their intentions, I'm, not, I'm certainly not questioning them. Uh, you know, uh, the book was helpful for me in, in in terms of spurring me to dig further. That said, COINTELPRO was something very specific. Counterintelligence is when you try to undermine your enemy. Intelligence is when you try to understand your enemy. Yeah, And the FBI was doing both mm. things. Uh, The counterintelligence program proper against black extremists had five points. If people watch Judas and the Black Messiah, they hear uh, Martin Sheen as J. Edgar Hoover saying the Panthers are a bigger threat than China and the USSR, which is uh, the actual inverse of the way J. Edgar Hoover thought of things. He thought the Soviet Union and the Chinese communists were the biggest threat, uh, to U.S. national security. He was always looking for foreign ties in investigating domestic surveillance. Yeah,
1: famously the, so.
2: The COINTELPRO black hate is five points. I'm not going to outline them all, but they're, they don't want organizations to work together. They don't want uh, youth to be influenced by these groups, and they don't want a black messiah. And when they say black messiah, they have something very specific in mind. Elijah Muhammad, uh, Malcolm X, had he lived, Martin Luther King, if he had taken a radical turn, people who literally led and influenced thousands of people. Uh, The best example is what they did to Kwame Touré, Stokely Carmichael, who was seen as a black messiah. He was literally hounded out of the country. Uh, Most of these, well, I'll save that point. So it's very specific. And what a Liz, uh, what a COINTELPRO is, it's an idea uh, which they write up in a memo. And, you know, we have this in this article we're currently running in Jacobin. They wanted to do a counterintelligence program against Fred Hampton. It's one of the few times you, it's actually the only time I've heard of a specific effort aimed at Hampton. And I actually, Connor, I actually just, uh, discovered a document where it's uh, this COINTELPRO is aimed at Fred Hampton and redacted. The redacted name is actually Bobby Rush, who's the Chicago uh, Minister of Defense. The COINTELPRO yeah. is basically this, uh, you know, Fred Hampton may be moved to the Oakland office, which is the national headquarters of the Panthers. You know, we don't want that to happen. Here's what we can do to make trouble for him. We're going to send a letter to Oakland saying essentially, you know, Hampton's been throwing his weight around. He recently suspended a group of us Panthers. He's been talking shit about you out there. You know, he's saying the only time the national leadership, you know, wants to hear from Chicago is when they need money. So the, you know, the letter was proposed. It was never sent because Hampton was murdered before it was sent, which kind of raises the big elephant in the room, which is that if the FBI had actually thought that they were going to kill Fred Hampton, why would they be pursuing this letter? Now, of course, they could have just been dealing on two tracks. And I'm not saying, you know, the FBI might have not had a much more intimate understanding of circumstances that would lead to the killing of Fred Hampton. They may have. The evidence I don't think is there. Uh, And the evidence is actually kind of important. Uh, And one, one last point is, as we were talking before we went live, the details do matter. Because if you're dealing with, you think, uh, an an omnipotent FBI that's able to kill people and get away with it, keep it secret for 51 years so that the wider, you know, American public, if you will, doesn't know about it. Well, that's one thing. But if you actually look under the hood at the actual details and mechanics, uh, you see a lot of other things going on. Connor's point in particular about not wanting to expose methods and resources is one of the reasons we don't know a lot of that. So, you know, I, I'll stop on that point. But.
3: So I just I just want to add something uh, because it is actually it might seem uh, mundane and some activists might have this opinion of what does it matter if it all falls under the FBI's umbrella, but there is a difference between intelligence count intelligence as Aaron was just speaking to it. And it's actually important because uh, I mean, one sort of shorthand oversimplification is when the FBI is listening, that's intelligence. And when they're talking, that's counterintelligence uh, because there's this idea of like splits and divisions that have been created by groups. Um, a lot of that is the famous poison pen letters, or they're making fl- fake flyers or like, the fake coloring books and all that stuff did damage. But what's what's worth remembering is the majority of material they sent from one group to another uh, anonymously was actually real material, but that had polemics or sort of criticisms of other groups. And that they themselves organized under intelligence because they were essentially sharing what was public information. They were just sort of pushing it in the direction of saying, Hey, this group just wrote an essay about why you're a revisionist group and not a bunch of real communists. So it's actually mm-hmm. important to realize that these divisions weren't just uh, manufactured out of thin air by the FBI. They were actually playing on existing divisions. Because the first attempt of something like this, they tried uh, with the Communist Party, this thing called Operation Hoodwink, where they tried to essentially, this is a COINTEL operation, where they essentially tried to pit the local La Costa Nostra against the, uh, the Communist Party with the idea that FBI didn't particularly like either one of them, and if they could knock each other out, that would be great. But it didn't really work that well because they, well, they didn't, well, the La Costa Nostra and uh, uh, the Communist Party didn't like each other very much. They weren't actually sort of politically on the same page, so that their divisions matter very much. Right, yeah. And they learned <laughs> from the fact that after two years of that operation, they basically shut it down, and then it became a lot more sophisticated. Mm. Where you have the things of like when they find out about disagreements between Huey Newton and and Elders Cleaver, they're like, oh, here's something we can actually work with. So it's not that they invented these divisions between Cleaver and Newton; they found them out and then they pushed them as much as they could.
1: So yeah, that that's that's sort of what it seemed like to me. Is 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 the Cohen These agents were really expert and essentially gathering intelligence on the people that, of course, they're spying on, and then exploiting that intelligence, which I guess is the purpose of gathering it in the first place. Um, the I I would the the Communist Party versus the. Um, versus the mafia would, would be a fantastic battle, but I think that mostly played out in Italy rather than America. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Ar- Ar- Aaron, you wanted to add something, right?
2: Well, yeah. Um, so, you know, Connor and I wrote this book. So, okay, so this is a, a plug for the book, but this is not a shameless plug. This is a relevant <laughs> plug. Uh, we wrote this book, A Threat of the First Magnitude, in which we yeah. attempted to understand... Uh, the infiltration methods historically, and particularly of the FBI, uh, and it, if you do that, you know you begin to understand that the FBI, uh, you know, they're able to do, uh, you know, uh, walk and chew gum at the same time, right? They at first they have a crim- whole criminal division, but then they have a, they had a whole national security focus. But one of the things they wanted to do was to get informants into organizations early on and get them in a position to be promoted. And the thing is, is if if you just focus on Fred Hampton as a black messiah murdered by the FBI, you're only going to understand a little bit of the picture. You know, for example, mm-hmm. William O'Neill joined the Panthers as it was forming. So he was on the ground floor, which put him in a position of more trust, as the group is forming, it's not vetting people in the same way as when it it's got a little bit of clout, and it's more and more worried about infiltrators coming in. You tend to trust the people who come in at the beginning, and even if you don't, you're you're a lot of times you're too busy. Mm-hmm. O'Neill comes in early. Okay, first he gets himself up to the position of. Head of Security. I just discovered, you know, the FBI um, has been forced to release a bunch of documents because of the uh, JFK 1992 investigation congressional Mm. ruling. There's this 1,636-page document dump on Fred Hampton that I don't think anybody's read. You know, people kind of figured. I mean, the a bit of a a aside there's this notion that people know everything and they're among a certain mm. type of, uh, activist. There's, there's a notion that they know more than the FBI. I think I used to be one of those people. And I I've learned that, uh, I don't know a lot about the FBI that in fact, you know, they're, they're a little bit different than what I thought they were.
1: Liz and I were actually talking about this this morning. Um, yeah. I think in basically those precise terms. Yeah.
2: Well, it's, it's a good talk people to have. It's, uh, uh, Mao Zedong, one of my old favorites, said you should have a uh, tactical, strategic contempt and tactical respect. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, and not enough well, you,
0: the FBI certainly had that for the Soviets, you would say. Yeah, <laughs> And no, the Chinese.
2: For sure. Uh, but, but back to O'Neill. So he comes in on the ground floor. He becomes head mm-hmm. of security. You know, I just discovered a document in this 1,600-page dump where he was he – was, uh, Uh, director of operations of the Illinois chapter by July 1969. He didn't want to continue as a head of security. And my sense was it was too fraught, too many people pointing fingers, and he didn't want to get in the midst of that. So he actually got promoted, you know, and that's beyond what we say in the article of uh, he thought he might get promoted um, if Bobby Rush, who was facing a weapons possession charge went to prison So O'Neill is actually rising up the ranks. He's not just—he's not just a provocateur, which I think people want to say. Oh, he was just set this up, and he made Kool Aid Mm -hmm. with barbiturates. Or sometimes
3: people say he's just like a bodyguard.
2: Yeah, it's much more complicated than that, and there is more to learn. Uh, The other thing I just—I just got a note from uh, a colleague today—is Bobby Rush is pushing on the uh, representative, the congressional representative from. uh, Uh, Chicago is pushing on releasing all documents relating to the Hampton thing. My personal view is, you know, you can't just ask for the Fred Hampton files. You've got to ask for the Chicago COINTELPRO files. And I suspect there's a hornet's nest of interesting stuff there, which uh, probably for another episode, but Chicago is, it's, you know, and Connor can speak to this. It's like a it's a certain headquarters and a hotbed right. for counterintelligence operations.
0: Why do you think that is, or what what kind of makes Chicago like special in this way? When you think about you know in the history of this program,
2: I think it probably evolved out of their uh, efforts against the Communist Party. Uh, I think it might have been somewhat accidental. Morris Childs, right? Connor, correct me if I'm wrong. Morris mm. Childs is this uh, this former communist who flips in the mid-50s and becomes an FBI informant. He becomes Gus Hall's bag man, traveling back and forth to the Soviet Union. Um, you know, and Him and his brother. Yeah, uh, Jack, right? Uh, but I think Morris is mm-hmm. in Chicago and snitches. he's recruited there. And it's such a coup that I think a lot of things developed further. And plus, you know, Chicago is mm. central, you know, so it's easy, you know, look right, of course. Be- before the internet, getting from here to there. Uh, was was not so easy. So going from New York to LA is one thing. Going from New York to Chicago is another. A little bit of speculation on my part, but uh, but uh, Carl Freeman headed up uh, the Chicago Counterintelligence Office. He's the guy who recruited this guy, um, Morris Childs, and he had a deputy uh, who actually started a lot of efforts against the Communist Party and, and members of the New Communist Movement. So. You know, that's the other thing about Fred Hampton is it's all Fred Hampton, Black Panthers. I'm actually curious about Fred Hampton, Students for a Democratic Society, Fred Hampton, uh, Young Lords Party, Fred Hampton Rising Up Angry, you know, because he's working with all these different... I was about to say,
1: I was about to say, I mean, Chicago, famously the site of the first and I would say probably only really, you know... dangerous iteration of of the of the uh the rainbow coalition because you know it had long been a site of this certain kind of white organizing i guess you could say you would uh you would join there you would erap and then a lot of those efforts trying to translate into like the young patriots organization and you had i mean they show this very kind of in a they don't really elaborate it on the movie they show like fred hampton going to like a church with a confederate flag in it um but they don't show. I mean, the Young Patriots were not like a Confederate organization. I mean, they had third world liberation in their charter. I mean, their charter was just the Black Panther 10 point. Maybe they made it 11 points or something like that. Uh, but, you know, you had this really um, sort of at the time unique mix of of organizing across like both racial and neighborhood lines. I mean, because that's, uh, I mean, often how it turns out, you know, you live in the same neighborhood as people of your race. Um and you had this sort of joint effort by by Fred Hampton and these you know and, and leaders of these other organizations. The the young Patriots, the guys from that organization, love the names. There's one guy named Junebug Boykins, which is just like classic uh, name for a guy like that. You know, these guys have these fucking kind of pop. Chicago, yeah, it's I mean, yeah, and uh, and Preacher Man, which I think is a, another great name. Uh, I think that guy actually spoke it this big 69 conference that the Panthers had in Oakland. I
2: actually got uh, William Fesperman's FBI file, and that's Preacher Man. Uh, The FBI was very concerned with him. Mm -hmm. and One of the objectives of COINTELPRO was to keep organizations from joining together. So if you want to understand what was going on against Hampton, probably you should look at the interactions of these organizations because there would be COINTELPROs to try to split people apart. That's actually the first point in, in that document that you guys got from this
1: FOIA dump. Uh, you know, in the goals in the goals section, it says: number one, prevent the coalition of militant black nationalist groups. In unity, there is strength, a truism that is no less valid for all its triteness. That's a good, good way to phrase it. There, an effective coalition of black nationalist groups might be the first step towards a real Mao Mao in America, the beginning of a true black revolution. And of course, the Young Patriots and uh, the Young Lords, famously not black organizations. But the line of thinking remains the same, is that there was this coalition effort. And this wasn't, you know, just like, you know, some SDS kids being like, you know, we're friends with the Black Panthers, you know, in in Indianapolis or whatever. I mean, these were these were actual sort of neighborhood proletarian groups. Um, And that uh, that. I think that in also in the popular narrative is why Hampton was killed. Like that's, that's sort of how I sort of understood it vaguely for a while is that like, well, Fred Hampton was bringing together the rainbow coalition and, you know, they, they, they marked them because he fucking, he was hanging out with, uh, you know, guys in cowboy hats and, uh, and, and, you know, guys in, in different colored berets. Um, when, you know, the truth is, is different than that, but like certainly, I, I I was talking to Liz about this this morning. Is that like I don't think that there is any way that Hampton could have survived the late sixties to early seventies. Whether that means he would have been driven insane, put in prison, driven into exile, or killed. I mean, I think there is essentially no way that 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 he would have made it. I mean, the moment he sort of became who he became, he was a doomed man. Um, but I think. The th- important thing to know is that like a doomed van doesn't just mean you're executed. It could mean you're driven out of the country. And back then, you know, there was a much bigger it's a lot harder to talk to your comrades back in America from Algeria, for instance, when you're having to write them letters and maybe making a very expensive phone call. Um, and so I think that like there was there was essentially no way Hampton would have survived in any sense, uh, even if he hadn't been killed in 69.
2: Uh, well, just to respond, I don't know, Connor, if you want to jump in on that or anything, but because uh, it's an interesting thought experiment of, you know, the counterfactual had Hampton lived. I mean, one thing I, again, a new document I just discovered is uh, Hampton was being considered to take David Hillier's spot in the National Office of the Black Panthers if David Hilliard had gone to prison. Well, David Hillier didn't go to prison until 1971, so that was probably a non-starter. But a lot of these, you know, the people who did survive that period basically either, you know, did like Eldridge Cleaver and came back and, Mm. you know, attempted to reintegrate in society in, in kind of humiliating ways or, they, you know, they tended to walk both sides. Of kind street. of with Eldridge Cleaver. <laughs> I
0: know, that's a bit of an understatement. Eldridge
2: Cleaver's You're reintegration very, in
1: society yeah. is an exercise in humiliation. The piece pants. <laughs>
2: I knew the piece pants Ooh. would come up. Uh, but, you know, like James Foreman <laughs> is instructive as someone else. James Foreman, unlike John Lewis, uh, was also who had also been a leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, actually uh, became part of the Black Workers' Congress. He became a Marxist-Leninist, Maoist, uh, ended up not working out. But the people who really wanted to cross the bridge into the 70s had to get with and stay political, had to get with some kind of organization with more of a strategic view. You just can't be out there you know, in this, uh, Connor's described this really well, this uh, escalating dynamic of raid, self-defense, raid, self-defense, which becomes more and more murderous. Mm. It's unsustainable. Um, I don't know, Connor, I mean, what, I mean, maybe you can talk some more about, you know, crossing that bridge and, you know, the difference between the outlook in 1969 and what people had to do to, to, you know, go ahead or, Well,
3: I mean, I think part of this is uh, speaks to what we were talking before of like pro and intelligence and that's all sort of merged together. And I think there's also a similar thing of uh, there's kind of this crude, vulgar Marxism that exists among a lot of actors today that sort of the state is and is this nice, cohesive thing where everything works very cooperatively and in like a very well-oiled conspiracy. And it's far messier and complicated than that. Um, I mean, I was alluding to that before talking about how much different the red squads were versus the FBI. Now, I, and, uh, to the point about, uh, would Hampton survived this is in one sense. I think the FBI thought they had Hampton. They, I think they, the impression I get from reading is they think that they thought they had him boxed in with the, uh, ice cream truck thing. And that was essentially going to push him out of the way because for the FBI, there's a number of things you can do. Um, they also did snitch jacking, which essentially was essentially trying to discredit people. And so, you know, by the end, you have some people in the Panther Party uh, saying that uh, Stokely Carmichael, uh, Kwame Ture, one of those people identified as a potential black messiah. Well, you had people in the Panther saying he was a CIA agent by the end. Right. So there's there's many ways they can go to do this. In fact, uh, part of why this movie exists, part of why we're talking about it is I don't want to minimize the horrific murder of uh, Hampton and Clark, but. It might, makes much more out of people when they become martyrs than if you can discredit. I mean, I'm sure the FBI is much happier with uh, the way Huey Newton died than the way Fred Hampton Absolutely. died. Absolutely,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. So there's yeah, many yeah. ways
3: for the FBI to discredit people, and they potentially used lots of methods. Uh, they just, when they found out of people about uh typically um, male members' infidelities, they would try to make a point of like sending anonymous letters, things like that. So there's many ways. They have to uh undermine people. And I'm not saying, oh, the guy wouldn't kill people because they're somehow above that. I just think that they're almost more ruthless and more strategic in realizing how much more valuable it is to discredit people, to snitch jacket people, to make people suspicious of each other. Then like because I think without a doubt, if you interviewed anyone who's familiar with the Black Panther Party, no one's in better standing than Fred Hampton.
1: Yeah. 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 Few kind of, like I was saying, like few came out of that, like unscathed or with their reputations, their yeah. lives or the, you know, their, their ability to operate legally intact. I mean, that's, that's the thing is like at the FBI in this case, I mean, it's a national federal organization. They have the long view, right. And they have yeah. the, the interests of national security sort of, their interests of national security, which I guess are the interests of US national security first and foremost in their minds. Whereas these local organizations, I mean, they were directly involved in these like shootouts with the Panthers and stuff like this. And so there's sort of a smaller way of looking at it. Now I think, you know, with these fusion centers and, you know, this integration with local PDs, I mean, look at New York police departments, the fucking yeah. intelligence division would probably make most countries, you know, military intelligence blush. But uh but but at the time especially I mean you know this is this is Chicago PD famously one of the most fucking pig-headed uh you know not to be uh, the, the, No
0: so. they were always on the up and up nothing mobbed up about that town <laughs> Yeah exactly just straight shooters left well, and right One
2: thing we discovered is uh and I is the Chicago um red squad uh, which went through an iteration of various names they destroyed thousands of pages of records when they were confronting being sued in the mid 70s. Uh, you know, Connor actually went to Chicago when we were working on, I think, the second book, The the Threat of First Magnitude. He actually went in and looked at the files. And you know, we were actually pretty disappointed. I mean, they show you pictures. I mean, it seems like they were very good with their cameras. But as far as uh, sophisticated intelligence about who people were, where they came from, what their political inclinations were, um, it wasn't, um, as interesting. But they were, you know, the police were confronting series of lawsuits by activists in the mid 70s, and they just destroyed thousands and thousands of pages. Now within that would be mm. uh, the gang intelligence unit, which was all over the Black Panther Party. So some of that stuff is just gone. But then again, uh, we've discovered agencies say things have been destroyed, and it turns out they haven't, which is why, you know, it's uh it's good to ask these questions and push on this because, you know, one may discover there's actual stuff to learn and actually learning it is extremely helpful, not because it's, you know, uh, it sakes uh, historical curiosity. It does. And that's, you know, I guess satisfying, but, but because the methodology, you know, methodologies, uh, tried and true methods that work tend to get passed down things that are disasters Tend to get right. abandoned, uh, which is why you know if you look at any intelligence agency, they're they're loath to uh, reveal uh, systems and methods, or, or there's a particular phrase they have. Um, but you know, to the degree you can understand, we, them, so we still get
3: to- denied files based on that. So, which yeah, means absolutely. that the things they've been using for let's see, at this point, sixty years are still effective because we don't actually understand them fully.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why they're also usually loath to release lists of informants and stuff like that. Right. Like, I mean, a lot of those people are probably first of all still alive. Um, but it can show just how, like what kind of people they target with Mm. these things. I mean, that's something that I think is so astounding about a lot of the stuff you read about the sixties is how many people were informants. I remember, I remember when I was 19, um, I can't remember what guy his first name is, but his last name. And speaking of the Black Panthers, there's a guy named Aoki in, uh, in in Berkeley, I believe it was, uh, who was, I believe, the originator of the phrase "Yellow Peril supports Black Power." Um, you know, he had been a big booster of the Panthers. You know, uh, sort of like a, a, a um, you know, did a lot of work in the Asian community and get, you know got the Panthers guns. And it turns out he had been a fucking, uh, you know, an informant for decades.
2: Well, so Richard Aoki's you know fascinating story. We actually have a whole chapter of him on him because uh, in our second book, because he uh, the left did not want to confront the fact that Richard Aoki was an informant. I mean, initially Seth Rosenfeld had come up with three or four bits of evidence. Then the FBI released two hundred pages, and a lot of people said, well, they could have been manufactured, which um, I mean, like the FBI has that much free time to uh, create a 200-page paper trail. But just to Somehow prove that... Somehow that
0: seems like more work than them just recruiting an informant for like 30 years.
2: It, it, it does kind of defy logic. So we, you know, I mean, we did a whole chapter. And we didn't just take the FBI documents. We actually showed Richard Aoki's own statements, you know, where he claims, well, I was in the Army and I didn't feel comfortable... Uh, you know, associating with leftists. And then there's a, a picture from uh, the Merritt College newspaper where Richard Aoki does this kind of Austin Powers uh, moment. Remember when Austin Powers is going through security and it's like, oh, no, man, you know, that's not my bag, the penis enlarger thing.
1: Right? Yeah, and yeah, 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 the yeah. Book,
2: like, you know, penis classic, enlarger, yeah, that's classic. my bag. Well, so Richard Aoki yeah. says, well, I didn't feel comfortable being a a socialist while I was in the army. And we have this college newspaper while he's still in the reserve, saying, I'm Richard Aoki and I'm a socialist. So, you know, he was actually doing two things at once. <laughs> you know, this is Aoki doing, uh, revealing himself. This is not the FBI, you know, so, uh, people just were woefully blind, which is, you know, again, it goes to, you know, if you, you do a little digging, I mean, you know, Connor and I, we don't have a huge legal budget, which is to say we don't have a legal budget. You know, we just, and Connor made this Mm -hmm. point uh, last week. It's like people have just stopped looking, you know, there's this assumption that we know. And Yeah. uh, Yeah. yeah, I actually hope other people start doing this work because there's quite a lot of it to do. And, uh, you know, it ought to give us a picture of the black Panther party in Chicago and what was going at them and quite a few other things. And, uh, and even embrace what you just said about the NYPD uh, and its intelligence division. I think more needs to be done now on how they're operating. And you know, like I say, people who are legally engaged in challenging the status quo need to understand, you know, how they're going to be undermined by authorities who, because they take it as their mandate to protect the status quo, are going to, you know, sometimes use some pretty vicious methods to clamp down.
0: really just quickly return to something you brought up earlier which is um at the a point in the movie you talk about how um it's martin sheen right yeah his portrayal of hoover where he says that you know he's not worried about the soviets or the chinese he's worried about the panthers and how that was actually like really not true that the fbi you mean the fbi very much was worried about the soviets and the chinese which is why they were i mean and correct me if i'm wrong here but i feel like this is an important part of the story that often gets not told, I think, for political reasons, which is that a big thing the FBI was worried about was the possibility of ties of the Panthers to the Chinese and to the Soviets. And there being, you know, more and more, you know, as these groups, domestic groups, start linking up and forming coalitions that they're more and more likely to either already have, um, you know, Soviets or Maoists in their ranks, Or they're more likely to then go outside of the U.S. and form more coalitions internationally, which was a huge concern. I think that was like the primary concern for the FBI.
2: Yeah, it's um, because the Black Panthers, you know, know, we're still trying to understand who their associations were. Um, They were hooked into the wider Mm -hmm. left. uh, And there was real concern about both pro-Chinese and pro Soviet communists, and, and you know, you know how the left is, as soon as there's like a happening organization, everybody's in there, you know, trying to, you know, uh, push their particular <sighs> agenda and stuff. And that, that was no less true with the Black Panthers. Um, but as far as the Hoover statement at the opening, I mean, there, it's been said, well, you know, the Black Panthers are the biggest threat to the national security of the United States. Um, we've actually had a little trouble tracing down that quote exactly, but I, I think the spirit of it is probably accurate. But it's in a very particular time of 1967, 1968, the long hot summer 1967, uh, the killing yep. of MLK, and every city in the country erupting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but priorities shift. You know, the the title of our second book is a threat of the first magnitude, because the FBI in 1970. 576 actually issued a statement it's self-serving but they talk about the revolutionary union revolutionary communist party is a threat of the first magnitude to the internal security of the united states why because the ru was so huge and influential no but because it was perceived to have the chinese communist uh franchise i mean I, i just posted a picture on facebook of uh the ru delegation you know meeting with uh a Chinese yeah, representative, uh, you know, you know, Pablo Guzman is there from the Young Lords Party. He was actually part of the uh, <laughs> delegation at the at the time. But Label Bergman, who had helped form the RU, you know, when he was on trial, or he wasn't on trial, but when Mark Felt, Deep Throat, was on trial in 1980 for you know these break-ins against the Weathermen. Uh, they also had to testify about the surveillance done against Label Bergman, who's this old guard communist who helped form this Maoist Revolutionary Union. So the head of the Bergman investigation is on stand, this S.A. Ryan, Special Agent Ryan, and uh, the prosecutor is asking him, "Well, how how big do you think that the Label Bergman file is? And Ryan doesn't want to answer it. But the uh, prosecutor is basically holding his hand up like three feet, four foot, five foot. You know, in other words, the investigation on Bergman is enormous, which I think gets to, you know, the reason you haven't heard about it is because it was ongoing in the mid 70s when the church committee was meeting. But these Mm -hmm. organized groups and like them or not, and there's a lot to dislike, like progressive labor or the Revolutionary Union were a much bigger focus, ongoing uh, for the FBI, the Black Panthers were were seriously a problem for them. You know that level of organization, disruption, the manifesto-like power of the group was something they were going after. The murder murder of Fred Hampton is integrally related to that, but it, it's part of a a wider tumult going on in the '60s. That you know, there's a lot of different forces in play, which I won't um, try 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 to encapsulate, but. Um, you know, yeah, the the for, foreign counterintelligence aspect is huge in this, and it, it's pretty in, in, instrumental or critical in understanding what was actually going on.
3: Yeah, I'm just going to add on it because um, this is another one of those things that everyone knows about CoinTel, CoinTel but actually isn't true. Is people have it's really fixated on the uh, civil rights movement as its main focus, and partially why that is is because the amount of CoinTel Pros that were opened at that point, but so we mentioned before, it started in 1956, it was start uh, targeting the Communist Party. And by like, 1971, when is forced to close, no one would consider the Communist Party a revolutionary organization, right? But the FBI still has that investigation going. Why? Because they're worried not so much about Communist Party leading a revolution, but its connection to uh, the Soviet Union. Like, uh, we know that the FBI had been monitoring the Socialist Workers Party since it 1941 possibly earlier but when do they open the coinco pro after they get their connection to cuba so they open that uh very shortly afterwards like in 1960 61 right uh and then we also look at these other things of oh uh, if anything we need to sort of understand how the fbi saw putting this together right like probably the most famous example of a uh, pro documents that people talk about is uh, martin luther king right those are actually in the communist files because uh, there's sort of been this thing of uh, what a lot of the left has done to sort of try to discredit or point out the exaggerations and uh, the folly of the FBI is sort of the the left has partially disowned some of its own uh, radical legacy, which I think is not very helpful. And so like, Oh, Hoover thought there was a communist under every bed and in every closet. And he thought, Oh, MLK was a communist. What a paranoid man. Didn't think, M.L.K. was a communist. He was worried about communist influence over M.L.K.'s grouping and his organizations. He doesn't actually think King's a communist, and that's what he's worried about. That's what he's worried about, these these things of, like, who's the FBI hooking up with? Oh, uh, Communist Party's providing a lawyer, like, uh, to Black Panther members. Mm. Everyone wants to talk Mm. about Angela Davis. Everyone conveniently leaves out that she was a Communist Party member. And this is really Mm. the FBI's concern, is how this all connects to communism. Now, a lot of things people point to is relation of Hoover's racism, and I'm sure he was quite racist, but if anything, that led him to somewhat underestimate the agency and independence um, and autonomy of black people in this regard, right? So it really takes sort of the long, hot summer for them to realize, like, oh, this is its own coin-to-provision. Like, everything basically up to that point, they really thought was the influence of communist groupings in one way or another, or communist front group, or communist adjacent group. They really didn't understand the Black Liberation Movement as its own thing until all these riots had popped up all over 1967 and they thought, oh, this is not just communism.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, King especially was pretty careful at times to like disassociate himself with people who were uh, let's say, closer to the communist movement. Um yeah. and of course, uh, I think sort of the there are many, many, many battles fought over King's legacy. And that is, uh, that is sort of one of them. Now he's recast by a lot of people sort of like a democratic socialist, blah, blah, blah. I mean, and the, the fact is you're right. Like he, you know, was nowhere near being a communist, but there were communists present in that movement. And, you know, specifically in the civil rights movement, we saw a lot of members of the SNCC, um, go towards the black Panthers or go towards the communist party. Um, and, uh, yeah, one of those people I think being Stokely Carmichael. I think he was in the SNCC, and he was, you know, kicked out of the country essentially. Yeah. Um. I think we got to wrap up soon, and I was just wondering, you know, for my last question, what do you, what do you guys hope that people can get out of, uh, of these new FOIA documents, and sort of this more nuanced way of looking at the murder of Fred Hampton and the general surveillance of the Panthers in, uh, in Illinois.
3: Um, off of some of what we've been saying before is we should stop assuming we know the whole story. So I think one thing it's worth doing is I think there can be a very convenient thing of certain activists when the FBI document reveals the FBI doing something bad, we believe that document. And when the FBI reports on something that maybe doesn't look so favorably on someone we hold in high esteem, well, that's obviously a manufactured document to make us create a division and uh, so uh, paranoia or distrust among each other. And you can't really have it both ways. I'm not saying that everything that's in an FBI document is accurate. Obviously, they're getting information from informants. Sometimes informants exaggerate to try to, like, uh, boost their credibility or maybe to get a higher uh, bonus. But these are historical documents, and they need to be taken as such. And just like any historical document, they should be scrutinized. I mean, this is the point of Aoki, right? The, when we came to the conclusion around Aoki, it wasn't the FBI's by the information by itself. It was that Then it made us go look at the historical record, looking at what Aoki himself had said uh, in his own words, and then matching this all up, right? um, Because in relation to figuring out who informants were, at least in the Revolutionary Union, which we've written about, it took us a long time and we were very careful about this. So for one, people should stop throwing around terms like, oh, this person's an activist, I mean, this person's an informant, this person's an agent, this person's a pig. That's that people think agent and informant are interchangeable is already a problem. Yeah, yeah. But it, people should really look at these documents because, for one, people think they have the whole understanding of these things uh, laid out, right? But if you were, t- if we actually learn more about who were informants and who were not informants, we think, oh, this whole direction the party went in was influenced by the FBI as opposed to the organization itself. It would, it would, should force us at least to assess this. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work out that way. A number of people have like, dug their heels in over the Aoki example and come up with all sorts of uh, excuses about what he did or didn't do. And none of it has actually really been confronting the evidence in front of it. And so there is, there is very much um, like the, there was the initial wave of uh, documents that were stolen in the, when the activists broke into Media Pennsylvania and we learned something. And then there were sort of some books around it. And then mostly what people have done since we've done research on this is they have sort of focused on a particular area in relation to their research. And it might seem uh, surprising, but we actually really don't have a full sense of Pro yet and what it exactly did and what it didn't. You know, maybe we will find they had a larger hand in Fred Hampton's murder than we thought. But right now we don't actually have the evidence to make that claim. And there's a lot of things that we think we know that we actually don't know. And to the other side of that, there's all sorts of stuff they've gotten away with that because we haven't even bothered to dig and look into it. So, uh, Aaron, do you want to add more of that?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, that's a good point because in the uh, "A Threat of the First Magnitude book, we, we make the point that a lot of these informants never got exposed. Richard Aoki wouldn't have got exposed unless Seth Rosenfeld accidentally got this document. And not only did he, you know... Uh, accidentally get exposed, I think people were willing to let it lay, you know, it, it was pushed, people pushing back against Rosenfeld that led Rosenfeld to finally get all the documents out. I wanted to make a, a different point. There's a certain fetishization about, uh, COINTELPRO. It's the, uh, you know, it's the, uh, the, the huge golem aimed at, you know, 60s activists, and it's responsible for everything. Um, And then you look at the bread and butter work of the FBI, which was basically collecting lists. You know, I I just finished the Jakarta method recently, and they talked about how the CIA shared lists with the Indonesian security forces to execute the communists. Well, in the United States, they were compiling lists, first a custodial Detention list in the 40s under Franklin Roosevelt, then a security index Mm -hmm. renamed under most of the Hoover years and later named the administrative index. Now, you know, just to uh, introduce a historical. RX 84. Yeah, there you go. A historical counterfactual. Had there been some kind of uh, military confrontation between the United States and China uh, in the 60s or the United States and the Soviets? You know, and that list was basically, that list would be something um, the executive would go to if they wanted to round people up. You know, had tens of thousands of people been put in camps, you know, we would be looking at COINTELPRO a little different. We would have been looking at it as, oh, well, they had this COINTELPRO thing, but they also had this security index thing. Now, that didn't happen uh, in, you know because it didn't happen, we can say it wasn't going to happen. But, uh, but you know, that was the bread and butter was the FBI every day, you know, they wake up and like, who do we have to go and find out where they live today, which gives you a sense of, you know, the political police, if you will, in the United States. I mean, they're actually out there operating and compiling lists of people that, that they think are threats. They're doing it in 2021. I mean, and it's a uh, it's an element of a larger array of, you know, media vilification, uh, you know, low level law enforcement, harassment, harassment at demonstrations. I mean, it's and understanding it as a whole is going to you know, leave you in a much better position to not be made unnecessarily vulnerable. That's why we have to understand what was done to Fred Hampton. Bad things, awful things were done to him. But, but I think what Connor and I are understanding is it, it wasn't quite what we thought it was. Uh, it doesn't make it any less, you know, awful. But, but, you know, as they say, the devil is in the details.
1: Well, thank you guys so much for joining us, despite our numerous technical difficulties, uh, which, of course, are part of a long-term NSA surveillance program against me that makes my computer take a really long time to start up and then sometimes makes me actually swear too much when I talk to Liz on the phone. Um, but uh, But yeah, so again... Just to reiterate, we got Aaron Leonard and uh, and and Connor Gallagher here. They are the authors of "Threat of a First Mag the First Magnitude," "Heavy Radicals," "The FBI's Secret War on America's Malice," which killed every malice in America but me, and "The Folk Singers and the Bureau." Um, thank you so much for joining us, fellas.
2: Pleasure. Oh, thank you.
0: Thanks, guys.
1: Well, that that was a great interview that we did uh, injustice to by pretending to be babies for five minutes before it. But hopefully, they don't listen. That.
0: I feel bad. Uh, it's okay. I always
1: just assume it really people. did
0: make me laugh. Yeah. Like, c- crying laugh.
1: Here's the thing: if it, you can't stop a woman from laughing. Women be laughing.
0: Women be laughing. Women
1: be laughing. <laughs> Women be laugh. No. <laughs> um, I, I would also recommend, uh, check out there. We did it. We did a previous, uh, previous episode mm. with, uh, with just Aaron about the folk singers in the Bureau that was, it was good. But, uh, yeah. also I believe a former member of the revolutionary union, which is classic. Always good to have in, uh, a, another good background on that is reading the book revolution, in the air fantastic, uh, book can't remember mm. who fucking wrote it, but some asshole did.
0: It's always good learning too, about just, I mean, driving home when we're talking about the difference between the Chicago PD and the feds, like it's not to, I mean, the Chicago PD, it's like, they're just like muscle goons, you know, mm-hmm. like beaten, beaten. That's what they're there for. Right. And the FBI is just like the, the kind of organized bureaucrats. It's really, um, it's really important to understand the difference there. Cause they, Absolutely. I mean, they work in tandem as much as they kind of hate each other and have their own, um, you know, disagreements and, tiffs and you know turf wars and whatever like they do like totally work in tandem and and you know very much did on the panthers for sure yeah absolutely absolutely
1: um and the uh the 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 group young patriots i was talking about earlier too there's a good uh there's a really good book about them called hillbilly national hillbilly nationalists urban race rebels and black power by amy Sani and james tracy um that uh who i think teaches at san francisco city college but maybe i'm wrong Hmm. But they're all there. Chicago in the late '60s, a fascinating fucking place. Chicago in 2021, not very fascinating, but still a place.
0: That mayor seems real. What's the deal with her?
1: She seems to be very popular in a big. Did you see there was like she got caught on a hot mic? But she
0: was unpopular. She's highly unpopular, but there's yeah, a. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she always looks like she's caught. She got caught in headlights.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a, she got caught in a hot mic the other day, being like, "Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ!" After like a city council member was talking, which I thought was really funny.
0: That's actually pretty funny.
1: Um, but no, she saw like even the people <laughs> yeah, who were like defending her by being like, "Look, it's like uh, you know, uh, we got a black lesbian mayor." Like, no, she fucking sucks now. Um, but yeah, she's she's
0: all, all rammed up. up, isn't she? Oh,
1: she's all rammed up. Well, yeah, I mean, every mayor of Chicago is a ROM.
0: Yeah. It's Chicago. We so, got to yeah. find
1: any more Daily Cousins or something to get in there. Oof. Yeah.
0: Nothing good can come out of there. No, 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 no.
1: Well, I'm just kidding. I love Chicago. Wonderful city. Much of my family lives there. And uh, my name is Bryce.
0: I'm Liz. We are, of course, joined by producer Young Chomsky. We should give a shout out. Music in this episode done by Kyle Dixon. Mm-hmm. And this has been Churn We will see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs> If you want to Jeffrey this your